0: Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker.
1: Unfortunately, I think America is too damn silly right now to have a serious conversation about race. Too many people, I believe, are interested in affirmation and confirmation, not actual information.
0: That was my next guest, Mo Kelly. Mo Kelly is host of The Mo Kelly Show, which can be heard in Los Angeles on KFI AM 640 The Mo Kelly Show can also be heard on iHeartRadio. And we talked about racism and gaslighting. Gaslighting is when somebody does something to you and then they act like they didn't and that you're crazy for bringing it up. We talked about hope versus optimism. We talked about how you can respond when somebody racially slurs you so that you don't become the story. We talked about a bunch of stuff. The springboard for Our conversation was Mo Kelly's interview with Roger Stone. You may have heard about that interview. Uh, Roger Stone, for those of you who don't know, is a GOP political operative and a former associate of President Trump's. He was sentenced to 40 months in prison after being convicted on charges of witness tampering, giving false statements, and obstructing the investigations into Russian interference— In the 2016 election, he was sentenced to 40 months. But in fact, the prosecutors who tried the case wanted him to go to jail for much longer. They wanted him to go to jail for seven to nine years. President Trump called their sentencing recommendation a miscarriage of justice, and the DOJ overruled the recommendation of the prosecutors who tried the case. They said, yeah, that's too much time. The prosecutors who tried the case against Roger Stone then resigned from the matter. But in any event, the judge sentenced Stone to 40 months in prison, ordered Roger Stone to pay a $20,000 fine to serve four years probation, and also ordered him to complete 250 hours of community service. In July, the president commuted Roger Stone's sentence. What that means is that he didn't have to go to prison. Among the reasons that the White House gave for commuting Roger Stone's sentence, one of them was that Stone was the victim of what the president has described as the Russian hoax. It bears repeating here that the heads of eight U.S. intelligence agencies have stated that Russia did, in fact, interfere in our 2016 election and that that was not a hoax, but in any event, the president commuted Roger Stone's sentence. Roger Stone doesn't go to prison, but he does go on my friend Mo Kelly's show. The clip I'm going to play for you is an excerpt from that interview. It begins with Roger Stone taking issue with what he describes as the different standards that were applied to different people in the investigation, in his view. And you will then hear what happens next.
1: In other words, Rosenstein, guess what? Lied to Congress about a material matter. When's he being charged?
0: I don't know. I'd love to see
1: it. That's my argument. No, no, no. I do believe that certain people are treated differently in the federal justice system. I do absolutely believe that. But I also believe that your friendship and relationship and history with Donald Trump weighed more heavily than him just wanting to make sure that justice was done by a person in the justice system that you were treated so unfairly. There are thousands of people treated unfairly daily. How your number just happened to come up in the lottery, I'm guessing it was more than just luck, Roger, right? I don't really feel like arguing with this Negro. I'm sorry, what was that? Roger? Roger? I'm sorry, what did you say? I'm sorry, you, you're arguing with whom? I thought we were having just a very spirited conversation. What happened?
0: Wowzers. I mean, wow. Here to discuss that is my friend, Mo Kelly. Welcome to the show, Mo Kelly. Thank you for being here. Uh, I know you're really busy. So you really do me a great honor by showing up.
1: Tanya Acker, I am never too busy for you. I appreciate your friendship, our professional rapport. And whenever you need me, I'll be there for you.
0: Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. I just have to ask you, you are interviewing Roger Stone. You are really getting into it. You're really getting into the nitty gritty. You then hear him make a reference to arguing with some Negro and you're the only person with whom he seems to be having a conversation. What in the heck is going through your mind when you hear that?
1: There are two things. One, it was a reaffirmation of so many things that I had heard throughout my life in the sense of growing up in the Torrance School District was one of the first African-American males in the school district. So you're used to hearing things in your presence, which you may not hear elsewhere, which are openly denigrating you and people who look like you. That was the first thing. And secondly, I thought about how once again, after 30 years of working in entertainment, 20 years in radio, despite any level of education I had attained or any professional accolades, here I was being broken down to my smallest component of just ethnicity as somehow not being worthy of having this conversation or asking these particular questions of him. And I was wasting his time by engaging in what he termed as arguing with this particular Negro.
0: He seems to have had a couple of responses to this, because according to Roger Stone, he didn't say it. Right. And also according to Roger Stone, Negro is not a slur and you, sir, yes. <laughs> need a history lesson. Yes. So yes. let's talk about the first part of that response, because he says he didn't say it. Now, I heard the audio. I'm not going to play it again. You don't need to hear that again. I'm sure you've heard that enough. But I think that you said it as well as can be said, sir. The audio is the audio. It speaks for itself. How do you think that one can, with a straight face, deny that? I mean, are we living in such a fact-phobic world that you can kind of, in good faith and in good conscience, put that out there? I kind of don't get it. I'm serious.
1: Yes, I do believe we live in a post-fact world where facts are fungible and negotiable and unfortunately relative to one's vantage point and political disposition, not in the real world, just in this world in which we live right now. And I don't believe that this is the real world. And I think anyone with a modicum of sense will agree that what we heard is what we heard. We live in a time now where all you have to do is sow a seed of doubt. And that's straight out of the Roger Stone playbook, where he will deny, obfuscate, attack, and insult. And I'm not even going to get into whether he is actually more in alignment with African-Americans with his supposed knowledge of our history. (laughs) That is so funny. I'm not even going to signify that with the response.
0: You didn't even know that you needed to go get... A black history lesson from Roger Stowe. You didn't even know that, did you?
1: Well, let me tell you how much he doesn't know about black history, because in our conversation, which you heard, he wanted to talk about Marcus Garvey and thinking that he would find some sort of kinship with me just because Marcus Garvey happened to be black. But if anyone who really knew their African-American history knew that Marcus Garvey was a racial purist, he was a racial separatist in the way the KKK was in the other direction. And there was a political allegiance at some point between Marcus Garvey and the KKK, because ostensibly they wanted the same thing. They wanted the races separate. But if anyone knew me would know that mentioning Marcus Garvey is not akin to who I am, what I want, or who I espouse myself to be. Marcus Garvey didn't believe in integration. I happened to.
0: And that really kind of goes back to your point about this kind of reductionism, right? So if I'm mad at an African-American, it's almost, I'm annoyed, you know, it's an effort to weaponize the Blackness against one. What do you think about this point he made that even though he didn't say it, being called a Negro is not a slur? What's your response to that, Morris?
1: The word Negro is not a slur, but it is a racialized pejorative in the context and with the intent In which was uttered. Let me give you a parallel. The word Karen is innocuous. But if you call someone a Karen, then you're ascribing racial behavior and motive. I don't believe it's as offensive as saying this Negro, but let me give you another example. If we were to say Mexican, that word in and of itself is not a slur. But if you have a conversation with a a person who's a professional whose last name happens to be of Spanish origin, and you say, I can't believe I'm arguing with this Mexican. That's a racialized pejorative. And we need to be clear. Just because you see the phrase United Negro College Fund, it's not the same thing as this Negro over here is getting on my nerves. You're specifying the ethnicity and weaponizing it against me.
0: I find something a little disingenuous in all this, don't you, Morris? Because... You can't tell me that people don't honestly know the difference between a discussion about the United Negro College Fund and I don't feel like talking to this Negro. You cannot tell me that adults don't recognize that distinction. He actually, you know, there was no contrition. There was no, you know, look, I'm tired. Sorry, didn't mean that. I'm annoyed and frustrated with you. He actually suggested that uh, you were kind of off your rocker for even suggesting such a thing.
1: Right, and I think that's the gaslighting era in which we live. Not only did I hear it, I have it on tape. There's really nothing to debate except people want to debate it. And yes, people have been obtuse enough to say, well, Negro's not a slur. No, it isn't, but we're not talking about the use of the word. And I actually blame a lot of media outlets for not correctly and specifically conveying what actually happened. And many outlets, including the New York Times, ran with the headline of that he used a slur and gave him some leeway to argue it in a rhetorical sense. And using the history of the word and how it was accepted in certain portions of society at a certain time as a way of saying like, hey, I didn't say the word, but even if I did, it's not a slur anyway. That's the rhetorical pretzel gamesmanship that he tries to do. And and if people aren't actually paying attention, if people didn't actually listen to the audio, if people aren't actually investing in the specifics, then it all gets lost.
0: And I think it's an important point, too, because let's just say that instead of saying, I don't feel like arguing with this Negro, he'd say, I don't feel like arguing with this African-American. The whole point is why and how Race becomes a relevant factor, you know, something to be lobbed at someone or used against someone. The intention being to kind of shut you down and put you in your place. You talked about growing up in Torrance and how this experience and doing this interview was kind of resonant with you and that it kind of reminded you of some of the things that you lived growing up. Do you care to talk about any of that?
1: Sure. I was only one of maybe... Four or five African-Americans in my high school, I was called the N-word the first day of kindergarten, N-word. And I knew what it was, and I chased him around the school because my parents had already given me the foundation to be able to recognize racism and also confront it. If and when I saw it, because they knew what was awaiting me in that particular school district. And there are any number of instances along the way. And it gets to be the point when I see what's going on right now and people say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe what Roger Stone did, what he said. It's just horrible. I said, no, it's just Tuesday in America. The difference is there happened to be tape rolling and you got to hear it. The difference is you got to see George Floyd die before your eyes. There was video of it. But America had not fundamentally changed. We could talk about Barack Obama and they say, well, we elected an African-American president and it was okay for the subsequent president, we didn't know who was going to be at that time, but for that guy to question his own birthright, whether he was allowed to be president because he didn't believe that his birth certificate was real. And America, by and large, allowed that to happen and they entertained that larger discussion to the point where Barack Obama felt at least it was necessary to show the long form of this birth certificate. These are all symptoms of the larger disease as far as the perception of the African-American, which coming back to Roger Stone, we always have to prove ourselves as if it's a perpetual audition. I had to prove that I belonged within the Torrance School District. I had to prove that I belonged to Georgetown University. Had to have been affirmative action had to prove that I belonged on KFI AM640. Why? Because I was the only African-American host. So therefore, it must be because I'm the token. They need me. I can't be on my own merit sitting in that seat. All that comes to the forefront where there's another guy sitting in front of you you're having a, a conversation with on the air. And I've interviewed seven different presidential candidates, senators, speakers of the House. You can run the list. And this guy basically said, I'm humoring you, but don't go too far because I'm getting really tired of arguing with you. You're a Negro behind. The sentiment is the same.
0: I just want to reiterate something that you said, because you're speaking about necessity that a lot of African-Americans have felt. And I felt it. You've talked about it. We've talked about it. Of proving that you deserve to be in the space in which you happen to be, as if there is an implied assumption that everybody else who doesn't look like you is necessarily smarter, better, more capable. One of the things that I found so masterful, really, about the way you conducted this interview was... You just didn't get thrown off your game. You didn't ignore it. And I think that sometimes, you know, when we're in these situations where somebody steps to us or tries to use race in a way that seems to come sideways, you know, a lot of the time there's a view that you have to ignore it because if you bring it up, then you're the problem. And then the flip side is you can sometimes react in a way where your reaction becomes the story and everybody forgets that somebody called you a Negro on your show. They just remember that you got really irritated.
1: <laughs> Wait, say that again. On my show, he was the guest. A
0: guest on your show. He's in my house. <laughs> comes to your house and calls you a Negro. If you get too upset, the story becomes about you. Yes. So, What you did, I thought, was just such wonderful journalism, so professional, really instructive, because you kept it up there. You know, you didn't let him run away from it, but you also didn't seem to be shaken by it.
1: I was a little shaken. Were you? No, I was a little shaken, if only because the African-American in me said, no, this mother father did not. (laughs) That's my internal dialogue. And if you listen to the audio as you played at the top of the segment, there's about 40 seconds of silence on his side and he's regrouping. Well, I'm regrouping, too. And I'm thinking about whether we're going right or left with this. Is he going to escalate or is he going to de-escalate? Is he going to confirm what he did or is he going to deny what he did? And that will probably predicate how the rest of the conversation goes. You were very kind to say I wasn't thrown off my game, but I was in this respect. There were some questions that I left on the table that I wanted to ask and did a getting around to asking because the whole interview had taken on a different tenor. And I knew I would never get back to that point without just blowing up the whole interview. And what got lost in all of this is, and I'm glad you as a counselor will understand this, there needed to be a discussion about not only the timing of the commutation, But also the preference of a commutation versus a pardon and the legal strategy going forward of how Roger Stone with a commutation still has the power and the ability and the choice to plead the Fifth Amendment. He still has the ability to deny and defy subpoenas, where if he were pardoned, he would not have that ability. And I think that goes to the implicit or possibly explicit quid pro quo with the president call it what it is, as far as I need to get you out so you don't say anything, and I also have to provide you enough cover if there's any future litigation against me, Donald Trump, where you, Roger Stone, don't have to turn on me. There is a real substantive conversation to be had. Let's not forget, Roger Stone, close advisor to the candidate Donald Trump, was convicted of lying and witness tampering to Congress, and what was he lying about? His communication with WikiLeaks, a foreign entity. So now he's been commuted, he gets out of going to jail, and he's gonna go back to the campaign of the impeached president, who was impeached for what? Trying to work with a foreign agent, foreign government to help his reelection campaign. It's almost prophetic in nature. There was a real conversation to be had there, and I never got there.
0: Hi, everybody. Just a quick break in my talk with Mo Kelly to say thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying this conversation and you're looking forward to all of the great ones I have coming up, I would so appreciate it if you'd go on to iTunes, give me a five-star review, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends and family on social media, on email if they're not on social media, even text. Share it how you can, and I'll really, really appreciate you for it. Now, back to my conversation with Mo Kelly. But Mo Roger Stone, of course, is not the first friend or ally of a president to have his sentence commuted.
1: No, he's not the first. I mean, you could talk about Bill Clinton pardoning his brother, but you have to look again, context. There's Paul Manafort, who's out of jail shouldn't be out of jail because of a complicit DOJ or a friendly DOJ. Let me put it that way. You have Michael Flynn where the DOJ intervened and said, no, we don't want to actually prosecute this guy anymore. Well, he's already pleaded guilty. Well, that's okay. We want to take it back. And you had the DOJ intervening and now you had the DOJ intervening not once but twice. I should say the Trump administration because first they wanted to lessen the sentence for Roger Stone. That specifically came from William Barr. And then you have the president commuting his sentence. So you have time and time again, this administration working on behalf of allies to the administration. And we we can talk about Michael Cohen as well, who's back in jail, arguably for lesser reason than these guys who are out of jail. And Michael Cohen is no longer a friend to the administration. I just don't believe in coincidences, but I damn sure
0: believe in patterns. I think that we're in this moment where people are not just trying to grapple with how fair systems and institutions are. But I think a lot of people, a lot of young African-American people uh, in particular, are really grappling with this experience of growing up in a world where you're seeing these videos. And now, you know, goodness, I mean, at least when we were kids, Morris, like you didn't have to go on Facebook every day and be inundated with something. And now you really have an opportunity to tell them something about how to respond when somebody really kind of comes at you from left field. And because you know what? A lot of the times it's not going to be somebody with the platform that a Mr. Mo Kelly has. It's not going to be on audio. There's not going to be video. It's going to be some young person in a situation where they're confronted with something and they have a decision to make. Can you give some words to young people about how they can hold themselves and how to manage that kind of conflict.
1: I'm old enough to know how certain things are going to be received and perceived before they happen. I knew I was conscious of not being the angry Black man in that moment, even though I had every right to be angry. And I knew it was going to be spun by him in that way, that I was just claiming that he was a racist. If you listen to the conversation, I make it very clear, Roger Stone, I never called you a racist and I didn't. And me trying to ascribe a label to him is neither here nor there. But for young professionals to answer your question, this is what I would want you to do. Be a student of your craft. And what I mean by that is one of my first mentors in radio is a sports host by the name of Jim Rome, And he had a, what I would call a similar interaction with a guest. He was speaking to David Stern, the late NBA commissioner. And he brought him on to ask him about the NBA lottery, and he thought that it was important to ask about the perception of the NBA lottery being fixed and other issues with the perception of the NBA. David Stern used a rhetorical device of a loaded question. And Jim Rome, to paraphrase, said, well, is the NBA lottery rigged? And David Stern responded with, well, do you still beat your wife? And if you answer that question, you're legitimizing it on some level. It wasn't true, but it was very personal. It was very inflammatory. And there's audio of it. You can find it anywhere. Jim Rome did not bat an eye. He did not acknowledge it. He did not give it any life. He kept pressing forward with his question and his interview. That was something which was on my mind during that moment with Roger Stone. I can't win a mud fest with Roger Stone. I can, though, separate myself and distinguish myself in the way of not giving in to the emotional part. I had a job to do, as Jim Rome had a job to do. I brought Roger Stone on right after he was commuted. There are a lot of good questions that people want answers to. And I could short circuit that by just hanging up the phone. But instead, I got a lot of good stuff afterward. And I don't think I sacrificed my integrity in the process. So, my recommendation is to learn your craft, know different situations anticipate as best you can the unexpected, and always remain professional. And if you've been a good student of your craft, it'll get you through.
0: Something that Mr. Stone said in the course of disclaiming the notion that he was racist, he said he's not racist because he supports affirmative action and opposes the war on drugs. As if, you know, Blackness is reduced or can be reduced to those things. How do you encourage young folks not to let themselves be pigeonholed into some definition of who they are as young people, as African-American people or Latinx or whoever they may be?
1: You just have to be that person. It's an ongoing struggle for me. Now, I'm sitting here with you as the host of a show, which is on the number one news talk station in America and it has a Black listenership of 3%. And if you listen to my show, I'm loath to discuss race for a number of reasons, but part of it is because I'm on a station with a black listenership of 3%. And in every major media source, I'm characterized as the black host. I strive every day to be just a host. And yes, I'm also black. And I'm not blind to African-American history, obviously not. But the world can't wait to pigeonhole you. The world is going to put you in certain canisters. There is not an answer that can rectify that. But the only recommendation I can make is let your work and your craft speak for itself.
0: What's the biggest surprise that you've had in this business?
1: Oh, when you wake up one morning and you're on the landing page of New York Times, New York Post, New York Daily News, um, Hollywood Reporter, TMZ, BBC Name anyone, Yahoo News, a a variety, every single one, trending number one in the world at one point. And it all has to do with you. And when you work in news, that is disconcerting because you're supposed to cover the news. You're not supposed to become the news.
0: Are you hopeful about the state of race relations in the world?
1: I would make a distinction between hopeful and optimistic. Optimistic is you can point to evidence or certain things that you see in the world, which are indicative of a truth or reality that you may be approaching or on that trajectory. In terms of hopeful, I think of the Bible, now faith is a substance of things Hope for the evidence of things not seen. So hopeful, I can be in spite of there not being any evidence of it moving in the right direction. Yes, I'm hopeful. No, I'm not optimistic because at this point, I'm 50. And I feel today, as I did when I was that child, first day at kindergarten, as if we haven't made substantive progress. We have made progress in the sense of changing laws, maybe gaining position, but not necessarily in the hearts and minds of this Democratic Republic experiment called America. I don't feel that African Americans are considered as much Americans as white people. I felt that way when I was a child and I feel that way today. And again, that's just feeling, but that's the distinction between hope and optimism.
0: And one of the things that distinguishes Americanism, I would say, from other kind of cultural norms is we really prize our right to be left alone. You know, it is American that you stay out of my business. I don't have to tell you what I'm doing unless you have a good reason for being in my business. And that presumption just does not seem to apply to Black people. You know, it's not just folks with badges. Look at the guys who killed Ahmaud Aubrey. Look at Trayvon Martin. Trayvon Martin wasn't killed by somebody with a badge. Trayvon Martin was killed by a private citizen who believed he had the right to get in Trayvon's business.
1: There's a video every single day, some weeks, where Black people not engaged in criminal activity are routinely questioned. And not only is the question inappropriate, the questioner has no agency in which to ask the question. But in that mind, that person's mind, they feel they have agency. Like, why are you here? Where are you going? Where do you live? Prove that you're allowed to be here or should be here. This goes back to... Roger Stone, as far as I'm concerned, it's almost like I didn't have the right to press him on legitimate questions as to his commutation. That, when I say that, I don't feel optimistic because that was a sentiment I thought of a bygone era, and now it seems ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And we see it more because we have video.
0: We have video and it's everywhere. I think we nonetheless have the ability to continue to make things better. How do you think we go about doing that work?
1: I think you have to do what you're supposed to do regardless of whether it garners the immediate result that you would desire. You do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because it's going to get what you want in a short amount of time. I'm not going to stop doing what I do or or in the way that I do it because I don't feel that it's changing the world. So the only thing I can do is do what I can with what I have right where I am. That's it. And I'm not saying that I don't have a a role to play, but I am going to say that I'm not going to be discouraged or encouraged simply by what is going on around me that I cannot control. It was said many times, be the change that you want to see. That's all I can do. And if in a small part... I was able to do that with Roger Stone to bring it full circle and people could see my humanity in spite of him trying to deny my humanity. Then all this was worth it because something positive came out of it. It's not like they can look at me and say, oh, look at that angry black man who's always complaining about racism. No, that's not there. It doesn't exist. But we can have a serious conversation about race because of it, if we're willing to have that substantive conversation. And unfortunately, I think America's too damn silly right now to have a serious conversation about race, if only because we only talk about it in these stark terms when it's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of gray area. And too many people I believe are interested in affirmation and confirmation, not actual information. When we have people who wanna tell me what racism is, and they weren't even called the N-word the first day of preschool, you can't tell me anything. There's a time for you to listen because you can't disregard and marginalize my experiences and then also say that you're an ally. Can't be done.
0: How do we have a better cross-cultural dialogue? Because a lot of folks are suggesting that it is impossible to have a conversation about race unless you completely agree with the person of color who's raising the point what do you say about that
1: i think part of the issue is race is now intertwined in politics and since politics itself is so polarizing it becomes about everything but the people and if you're going to talk about race you have to talk about people not politics because politics and politicians will change it was said to me long ago as well that there are no permanent friends, there are no permanent enemies, they are just permanent interests. And if we're going to have a healthy, robust discussion about race, it has to be about people, real people, not whether you support Donald Trump or not, not whether you're a Democrat, not where you want this particular piece of legislation or not. It has to be about people. Let me give you a correlation. If you're talking about immigration and you don't include the humanity of the people, we've already lost the conversation. You've already missed the point because it has to include the humanity of the people. And if you're not willing to discuss race and how it impacts the humanity of the affected, then you will never understand the whole point. It doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or not.
0: What's the best experience? that you've had as a broadcaster.
1: Oh, it's so funny. If you've ever seen the movie city slickers, mm-hmm. there's a character opposite Billy crystal. And he talks about the worst day of his life. And it's had something to do with when he threw his father out of the house when he was like 15 years old. And then Billy crystal turns to him and says, what is the best day? And he said that same day, I would say that looking back It was the most difficult time of my career, given the uncertainty of how it was going to be treated in the world and seeing my name everywhere. And I didn't like seeing Negro trending on Twitter. That gave me no joy at all. But I was appreciative that I think that I came through the event less scathed than maybe other people would have. And I think that in the end, at least in the small way, Something good will come out of it and hopefully will increase the humanity for Black people.
0: With respect to this experience, I think that you have given a lot of us not just something to think about, but a role model for how to react. Because just because somebody tries to come at you or may throw you off your game, you don't have to let them get away with it, but you also don't have to get so mixed up that you lose sight of your task. And a lot of people want to do what you do. There are so many young people who would kill for your platform in radio. What's your advice? What's the Mr. Mo Kelly way?
1: I have three pieces of advice and it's applicable to everything But it was born out of specifically wanting to do this job. So it's going to sound generic, but it's actually specific. And it's in this order. Number one, be humble. Be humble. Because I think it sets you on the correct path to maximize your greatness. You never know who's watching you. You never know who's listening to you. You don't know who can be an advocate for you. The humble person has the best opportunity of being noticed. Be hungry. There are plenty of other broadcasters who I would say are better than me, maybe more naturally talented than me. But I don't believe that there's anyone who can outwork me because that's the only thing that I actually can control. I practice with my diction. I was horrible as far as reading copy when I first got into this business. It's something that I had to actually practice. I had to practice to learn not to use crutch words. Some people would say us and ums and ands and so. You have to learn how to be a broadcaster. So number one, be humble. Number two, be hungry. And what I was just indicating was number three, be a student of your craft. Because I was a student of my craft, there were things that I could draw upon. In other words, like if you're gonna be a Christian, read the Bible, have some scripture to draw upon in those moments where you need to be able to draw upon it, where it is there for you. And being a student of my craft, I had instances and mentors, advice, similar situations that I've seen that I could draw upon to help me navigate through this moment. Be humble, be hungry, be a student of your craft. Just as simple.
0: Be humble, be hungry, be a student of your craft. Excellent advice. Thank you for the advice, my friend. Thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you for being on the show. I love talking to you.
1: Thank you. I'm just tickled that you even thought enough of me to come dialogue I'm tickled
0: that you're here. (laughs) Thanks, Mo.
1: I appreciate you.
0: That was my interview with Mo Kelly. You should listen to his show on KFI AM 640, also on iHeartRadio. Let's Stay Hopeful. And remember that even if you're not optimistic, you, we, all of us, we have the power to make things better. I will see you later. Peace. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody.